The moment the ferry pulls away from the dock, you start to feel weird. A chilly wind is blowing, but the bay is calm. Odd, you've never gotten seasick before. Your heart pumps hard. The seafood chowder you had for lunch broils in your belly. Maddening prickles crawl under your skin. Rising on the wind, you can hear the voices of the damned. Growing louder and louder, the angry mutterings beat at your skull, suffocating, unbearable, rising to a crescendo. The island suddenly looms out of the fog. A rusty water tank, weathered buildings, some burnt out and hollow. The unyielding tower where sharp-eyed guards released a barrage of bullets on those who dared to try to escape. You shudder. You finally understand what your body has been trying to tell you. Danger lurks here. There are spirits still trapped on the island, even though they've long since passed away. Welcome to Alcatraz. Hopefully, you'll leave the island with your sanity intact. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to sinister Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other podcasts on your favorite podcast directory. Rising out of the frigid waters of the San Francisco Bay is the legendary, fog-shrouded island of Alcatraz. The island is small, only a rocky 47 acres, but visible from the mainland. However, to the hardened criminals who were imprisoned at the penitentiary, San Francisco was a world away, a mile and a half swim through cold, choppy waters. Long before the penitentiary existed, local indigenous tribes thought that evil spirits roamed Alcatraz Island. Some tribes banished people there as punishment for violating tribal law. In 1850, the United States officially took over the island, and by 1859, they had built Fort Alcatraz, a defense outpost of around 200 soldiers. Eventually, part of the camp became a military prison for Confederate Civil War prisoners. 
After the Civil War ended, the prison was expanded. Into the early 20th century, the prison housed army deserters, war criminals, and defiant Native American leaders who rebelled against white rule. Alcatraz Island continued to operate as a military prison up until 1933, when it was acquired by the federal government. The Department of Justice set about creating the toughest federal prison in the United States. Alcatraz Penitentiary opened in 1934 with one aim, to break the will of the U.S.'s toughest, most unruly inmates by putting them on a methodical, repetitive program until their release. But some prisoners would do anything to break the monotony. Rufa turned over on his mattress. He had woken up before the alarm again. He hated that. He could never get back to sleep before... 6.30 a.m., rise and shine. Time to get dressed, tidy your cell, and be counted. At 6.55, they marched in a single-file line to the cafeteria. Rufa took a big bite of eggs. At least the food was okay, even if he only had 20 minutes to gulp it down. Sometimes he thought about standing on a table during breakfast and belting out a song. He hated the silence, but he didn't want to end up in solitary. Mealtime was over. Time for work. Rufa woke up early again. What day was it, he wondered. Tuesday. No. Tuesday he had scrubbed down the shower room. Was that yesterday? What was that sound? Who was whispering? Rufa cocked his head, trying to hear. Six thirty a.m. Rise and shine. Time to get dressed, tidy your cell, and be counted. Eggs for breakfast. Work detail. Mop the kitchen floor. And on and on. The days stretching out before him. What day was it? month. September? It was getting colder. Rufa lay on his mattress and listened to the whispers. At first, he had hated the prison's rules about not talking. Who knew that silence was so loud? It weighed a man down, thundered in his ears, made his brain throb. But then... The whispers came, and he was glad. The whispers told him many secrets. Six thirty a.m. Rise and shine. Time to get dressed, tidy your cell, and be counted. Rufus stared down at his left hand as he ate his eggs. It was ugly. The whispers told him that his left hand was bad. He thought about it all the time, had done so for weeks. They were right. His other hand was strong with a good grip, veins gracefully tracing under the pale skin. 
The bad hand was fish-belly white and clumsy when he tried to use it. No wonder the police had caught him. His stupid left hand had let him down. Mealtime was over. Time for work. Rufus swept the floor. Today, he was part of a work crew cleaning the garage. He paused to stretch, flexing his hands, mindful of the armed guards watching the inmates work. Something caught his eye. Could it be? Rufa casually swept toward the fire truck. Yes, it was. Now was his chance. He began to carefully sweep under the truck, edging his way around toward the rear. Suddenly, Rufa made his move. He snatched the small hatchet from the truck's tool compartment and knelt on the ground. He gripped the hatchet in his good right hand and brought the sharp blade down on his bad one. He curiously stared at the bright red blood spurting from the stumps where his thumb and index finger used to be. Something light tripped through Rufus' veins, and he felt his mouth stretch wide into a grin. He brought the hatchet down again, severing his wormy little pinky and the finger next to it. The guards tackled Rufa before he could get a third strike. They carted him off to the infirmary as he begged. Can you help me do the other hand? The Rufa Percival incident received a fair amount of public attention. However, the warden saw Rufa's self-mutilation as a ploy for attention rather than mental illness, and only temporarily sent him to the infirmary before he was returned to general population. The mental strain on prisoners at Alcatraz could be enormous. Prisoners were only guaranteed five things. Food, shelter, clothing, a shower once a week, and the right to see a doctor. Anything else, such as mail or recreation privileges, had to be earned. The inmates lived in cells measuring about nine by five with a seven-foot ceiling. The tiny living space contained only a desk, toilet, sink, and Murphy bunk. Furthermore, in the early years of Alcatraz, the warden enforced a silence policy. Prisoners were forbidden from speaking to one another, singing, humming, or whistling. They were allowed to talk for three minutes during recreation yard periods and for two hours on weekends. Perhaps that is why they say the walls of Alcatraz whisper. It's the voices of those past inmates, stored away in the cold stone, carrying the suffering that was never said out loud. Coming up, we'll have more from the dark halls of Alcatraz. Now, back to the story. Due to a severe, tedious schedule, many prisoners serving sentences at Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary suffered mental breakdowns. Between 1936 and 1937 alone, 14 prisoners went insane, and many tried to self-mutilate or commit suicide. 
Unfortunately, the prison's doctors did not always take this risk seriously. <coughs> After breakfast, the inmates were being counted when Joe decided that he couldn't take it anymore. He was a sick man, and he shouldn't have been there. It was too cold. The stench was vile. The prisoners were pathetic. But the wind was the worst of it. It echoed off the walls and screeched in his ears. It rattled his brain and chilled his spine. He tried to huddle in the corner, to hide under his bed, to wrap himself in his own bedsheets. But still, the wind screamed and ripped at his flesh. He yanked off his glasses and stomped on them. They broke. Joe scooped up a jagged piece of glass and saw it at his throat. The guards tackled Joe, knocking him to the floor. He lay there dazed. His throat stung where he'd made a shallow cut. The wind screeched, somehow louder, like it was angry with him. In the infirmary, Dr. Twitchell poked and prodded at Joe, clearing his throat while jotting down notes. Joe hated Dr. Twitchell and his cold hands and even colder, judging eyes. Couldn't he see that Joe was sick and needed to leave this place? Didn't he hear the terrible wind? Finally, Dr. Twitchell declared that Joe was pretending to have mental problems, but wasn't really insane. He sent Joe back to his cell, but after that, the guards kept a careful eye on him. During morning roll call, Joe started twitching. His skin itched. Blood raced through his veins. The wind blew. It filled his ears. He could feel its icy touch on his heart. He could feel it rattle and shake his bones. He started banging his head on the cell bars. He must stop it. He must stop the wind no matter what. Joe was treated for a small head wound and sent back to a cell. The wind came again. It wrapped around him. It froze his skin. It told him secrets. You must not work, it said. It's very dangerous to work. When the prisoners lined up for work detail, the wind rose up and Joe started screaming. Put me in the dungeon. I will not work. Joe got a day of solitary confinement for that and another trip to the infirmary. Dr. Twitchell refused to reassess. But the wind kept coming. It pushed him this way and that. He felt it peel away his skin, layer after layer. He needed to be transferred. If he stayed, the wind would tear him apart. Joe taunted and slapped guards, started brawls and food fights each time earning himself trips to the infirmary and stints in solitary confinement. But they would not transfer him. He was unwell and should be free. 
Why couldn't they see that? Couldn't they hear the wind? Finally, after fighting with a guard, Joe was sent to the hole, the darkest, most isolated cell in the prison. He lost track of how long he was there. All he could do was curl in a ball to keep warm. For a while, he thought he escaped the wind. There was nothing in his cell, nothing but beautiful darkness. But then it returned, taunting him. He was alone with it here. It was just him, the darkness, and the wind. When the guards finally let him out, the jail was too big, too loud, too everything. Joe's head hurt, but he was quiet now. The wind was part of him. It was him. For work detail, Joe was assigned to the incinerator. He sorted metals. He burnt waste. The work was hard. The guards watched him closely. The wind taunted him, laughed at him, tempted him to give up. Then an especially bright morning came. The sun reflected off the water and hurt Joe's eyes. In the distance, a tour boat sailed by. The incinerator belched thick, foul gray smoke as Joe shoveled garbage into it. The entire stench of the prison gathered before his nose. Joe watched a seagull catch an updraft and soar. His mouth gaped. The seagull rode the wind. The seagull had conquered the wind, flying atop it with grace and ease. He knew this was his only chance, the only chance he had to defeat the wind. He needed to be like the seagull. He needed to fly. He needed to be free. The alarm for lunch began ringing as Joe dropped his shovel and ran for the fence. He heard the guards in the tower shouting at him, but he didn't care. The wind whipped into a frenzy. It tried to blow him over, to hold him back, but he would not give in. He leaped for the fence and began to scramble up its metal links. Joe kept climbing when they fired a warning shot over his head. His hand snagged on the barbed wire on the top of the fence. It ripped his palms, but he kept climbing until... The next crack of the carbine caught Joe in the torso. He tumbled over the prison fence to fall 60 feet and land on the rocks by the water's edge. And the wind? The wind finally stopped. And all Joe heard was the lone shriek of a seagull. Joseph Bowers died on April 26, 1936. His desperate bid for freedom is considered the first escape attempt from Alcatraz Penitentiary. Since then, Joe's motives have been debated. Was he really trying to escape? Or was he purposely committing suicide by prison guard? 
An eyewitness claimed that Joe was attempting to feed a seagull and started to climb back down after the warning shot. But the official version of the incident says nothing about this. Coming up, we'll visit the darkest depths of Alcatraz. Now, back to the story. From the time Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary opened in 1934 until the time it closed, 29 years later in 1963, there were 14 documented escape attempts. It's likely that many more attempts never got beyond the planning stages. All escape attempts were met with swift discipline. Often they were sent to the most feared place in the prison, D-Block the disciplinary wing. This 42 jail cell unit had no contact with general population. 36 of the cells were regular, but convicts assigned to them were confined to their cells and not allowed to eat at the mess hall or to be on work detail. The other six cells in D-Block, D9 to D14, were referred to as the whole. These cells were on the bottom floor of the prison and faced the bay, making them 20 to 30 degrees colder than the rest of the facility. Prisoners were often kept naked in the hole. The worst cell of the hole was known as the strip cell. The cell's walls were painted black, and it had a hole in the floor for a toilet. The cell had standard metal bars with a slot to pass food through. In addition to the bars, a solid metal door could be closed, blocking out all light. Prisoners subject to the hole emerged disoriented and sometimes insane. Others developed arthritis or pneumonia after spending days naked in a chilly cell. But some prisoners suffered a much worse fate. Jim knew where they were taking him. He went stiff, screaming at the top of his lungs, but the guards only continued dragging him. It wasn't his fault. He hadn't started the food fight, just protected himself once it got going. They shoved Jim into cell D14 and quickly stripped him. He pleaded with the guards not to close the steel door, not to take the light away from him. They smirked and slammed it in his face. Then Jim was alone in the cold, foul-smelling black. Or was he? Though he couldn't see, he sensed something in the darkness, something that filled that emptiness. He began to regulate his breaths, trying to ignore the sewer stink The only way he was going to get through the next few days without going crazy was to use his mind. Jim crawled until he could touch the wall. He stood up and started walking around the edge of the small cell. Pacing would help keep him warm. He paused, straining his vision. But the cell was too dark to see anything. A strange scratching sound seemed to fill the room. He held his breath, listening as he inched along the wall. 
until he came to a place where a pair of glowing red eyes suddenly blinked open. Jim froze, and then silently eased down to the floor. He painstakingly crawled toward where he thought the door should be. Behind him, the wall bulged, stretching like warm taffy, and then it tore. Jim watched in horror as a man, a thing, with glowing red eyes, wearing a waistcoat and breeches, stepped out of the wall. He screamed, urgently banging on the door, yelling that there was something, someone, in the room with him. The thing drifted toward him. He screamed, pleading for the guards to let him out. It's in here with me. Please, oh please, it's in here with me. But there was no response. Only the unfortunate, windy echo of the cold cell. Jim turned around and shrank against the door. The man loomed over him, watching him, head cocked with mild curiosity. It's in here with me! He shouted again. His voice felt raspy, and this time it came out like a pathetic squeal. Please, open the door! It's in here with me! No response. Nothing. It was just Jim and the frightening red eyes before him. The thing shot his arms out and grabbed Jim around the neck with icy hands. He squeezed hard, choking him. Jim clawed at the hands to no avail. He tried to make a final grab at the thing, but his arms felt heavy and wouldn't respond. The last thing he saw before his vision blurred were those glowing red eyes. Please. His voice was a whisper now. It's in here with me. The next day, it took some time before the guards realized that Jim was gone. They had heard him screaming last night, but many prisoners in the hole screamed. When the screaming finally stopped, they figured Jim had fallen asleep. In fact, it wasn't until lunch that anyone realized he was missing, and they went looking for him. They found Jim, pale and cold on the floor, his face contorted in terror. Around his neck was a string of livid, fingerprints. By the 1940s, Alcatraz had an interesting reputation. Over the years, guards and prisoners alike occasionally claimed to see prisoners, usually in old-fashioned military uniforms, walking the prison, and then simply vanishing. D-Block especially was known for having a ghost dressed in old-fashioned clothes from the 1800s. Sometimes, guards saw him passing near the hole. They frequently joked about the spectral prisoner. 
So when a convict confined to cell D14 started to scream about a man with glowing red eyes being in the cell with him, the guards didn't take it seriously. Oddly, the guards on duty the night the prisoner died swore that the next morning, the newly deceased inmate lined up as usual for the morning roll call, but then later disappeared. Visitors to cell D14 say that it's extremely cold, even colder than the rest of the hole. Many report hearing ghostly whispers and feeling very uncomfortable in D14. One ghost hunter claims they even felt cold fingers on their neck when in this cell. Alcatraz closed in 1963 mainly because the prison had become too expensive to run. In 1972, Alcatraz became part of the National Park Service. It opened to the public as a museum in 1973 and has been a popular destination ever since. The legends of paranormal activity at Alcatraz have only continued to grow. phantom cannon and gunfire, banging within the walls, doors closing on their own, spectral old-fashioned soldiers, an intense, oppressive atmosphere. And some guests have snapped inexplicable photos with ghostly figures in the background. Alcatraz is popular with ghost hunters and psychics. Some suggest that Alcatraz isn't necessarily full of ghosts, It's the setting of many residual hauntings. When strong emotional or physical trauma happens in a space, it leaves an impression or recording of the event. Rather than a ghost with agency haunting a place, some facet of the original event is supernaturally repeating itself. The next time you're in San Francisco, be sure to visit Alcatraz. We suggest wearing sunscreen and taking a jacket. The sunlight reflects off the water, and the wind blowing through the bay can be chilly, even in the summer. Listen to the tour guide, step into a jail cell, and see just how small a prisoner's world was. Contemplate how the lack of freedom and stimulation can wear on a man, day after day. Gaze across the water to San Francisco and experience just how maddeningly close and simultaneously how far away the mainland is. Take a minute to count your blessings and have a moment of silence for the poor souls who died here on Alcatraz Island. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next week. 
Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Candace Rogers. I'm Greg Polson.